Well, we looked two weeks ago at a passage, and I know it was a very difficult passage, uh, and maybe my preaching made it more difficult. That's possible too. But last week, we essentially looked at what happens when man deteriorates, his mind deteriorates when he rejects God. And we're talking about rejecting the God of nature. His mind is unable to interact with nature properly. His mind is said to become futile. And that futility makes man unable to live in harmony with nature. So he does things that are contrary to nature. He invents theories and sciences that contradict nature. We looked at some theories two weeks ago that give examples of that. So when Paul moves from this idolatrous mindset, he moves into idolatrous worship. This is going to be a big part of this sermon is that religion is always accompanied by worship. So a religious mindset is eventually going to manifest in religious worship. And that's where Paul goes here. And when he wants to describe an idolatrous culture, he points to their worship. And to do that, he points to no other picture than the homosexual exchange. The homosexual exchange in Paul's theology is the manifestation of an idolatrous mind of a God-hating mind, of a God-rejecting mind, which we have to understand is a religious position. That's a religion in and of itself. It is a faith belief to reject God. And so I hope that in some way we can clear the chessboard of our preconceptions of what the sin of homosexuality is and allow the word of God to teach us in a sense from scratch, which is why we began with uh, Leviticus 18 where God commands, you must not do what they do in Egypt. You must not do what the nations around you do. I think that alone is enough for Christians to embrace a God-honoring sexuality. Is because that alone distinguishes you from the culture around you. And that's going to be part of our exhortation. Our conclusion is just to live in the light of godly sexuality, but we're not there yet. So let's look at, Essentially, there's two aspects to this passage. Number one, we look at what happens when God abandons people. The sermon title is God gave them over. It's taken right from the text. God gave them over. And then we're going to look secondarily at the fact that culture is worship. Worship is culture. They're the same thing. And so that's sort of how this passage is divided. Let's look now at when God abandons people. Three times, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. It says, therefore, God gave them up. Verse uh, 26, for this reason, God gave them up. And in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. That's the theme of this passage. God gives people up. He lets them go. God responds to the suppression of truth, which is man-driven. We do that on our own. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God gives us over to that desire. God does not cause us to suppress the truth, but God does give those people over to idolatrous worship and idolatrous mind. God is not passive in this sin. This phrase, God gave them over, is translated literally that he has delivered to judgment or he has imprisoned. It's the idea that God has given the verdict and he has delivered the sentence. He has imprisoned man in his idolatry. Man chooses it 
freely and then becomes imprisoned in it by God's action. That's what this word means. In other words, God let them in, excuse me, indulge in their desire. He removed any restraint. And there are different types of restraint that we should actually see right here in this passage. In other words, when God gives them over, he removes the roadblocks. He removes the obstacles in the way that would prevent man from indulging in sin. And, and that is a, that's an abstract concept, but I want you to see concretely, there are three different ways that God restrains sin in the world. There are three different ways. Number one is the restraint of nature. Nature itself is a restraint against many forms of evil. Um, it says that when God gave them up to their lust, it says they exchanged the natural use of the woman or the man for an unnatural use. And so to look at, let's say, the sin of homosexuality, nature itself prevents us in a way, or it restrains us in, in a way, not ultimately, but it does restrain against that sin. Again, most teenage boys and girls don't need to be taught how things work because it's the natural course of life. So nature itself tells us what should go on when it comes to men and women. So nature is a restraint in the first place. It reveals God's purposes. Number two, conscience. Your conscience is a restraint and God gives a conscience to every person on earth. That's not a special thing just for Christians. The world outside of the church has a conscience about what is right and wrong. They do. And this is, this is built right into our text as well, because the, it says that when they pursued it, they went against what is revealed to them. They had a knowledge about what was right and wrong. They knew they were exchanging the truth about God for a lie, for idolatry. So the conscience itself, which is basically the shame that you feel when you do something wrong. Children have a tremendous conscience. Your children, even at age three or four or even two, they, once they know the rules of the home, the shame of disobedience permeates their actions, which is why it is good to teach children the law of God, because it instills in them, it reinforces the truth that their consciences already tell them. It helps them to act in accordance with God's law. It informs their conscience. And then finally, we have the law. The law is the third and likely the most concrete restraint against sin. We see that down in verse uh, 28, when it says God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It says, for they know the ordinances of God that those who do such things deserve to die. That's speaking to God's law. If you look at Leviticus, th those sexual sins, many of them carried with them the death penalty. The death penalty. There was no death penalty in Israel for political treason. There was no death penalty in ancient Israel for theft. There was, however, the most strictest uh, penalties were reserved for blasphemy against God and sexual perversion. And so it says that the law itself is a restraint. Even if you ignore your conscience, even if you ignore nature, the fear of what the law will do to you if you're caught 
is that final restraint. I think I know as a teenager, I sometimes had a mischievous spirit about me, but I never wanted to break the law. I only wanted to do what I could get away with. And if I felt that I would be breaching the law, it was a restraint that kept me out of some trouble as a teenager. And that's a good thing. It is good to prevent somebody from breaking the law. If you know somebody who's about to break a law, one of the wonderful things you can do is to warn them of the consequences of breaking the law, whether it's the law of God or the laws of the nation. Hopefully those do coincide. But there's three types of restraint. There are three types of restraint that God grants through nature, conscience, and law. And there may be more, but that's what I found in the passage this morning. To go beyond three forms of restraint tells you how far and how committed you are to that sin. When it is against nature itself, when it brings shame upon your conscience, and when it breaks the laws of the land, your commitment to that sin must be strong. To break through those three barriers. And when God removes those, he has totally allowed a person to charge headlong into that sin and all that it will bring upon their life. And I tell this to my kids. We have some kids here this morning, and I want to remind you, what you practice is what you will get good at. Have you learned to ride a bike? Yeah. Have you guys learned to ride a bike? Right? Take some practice, right? It does. Yeah. If you fall down once, you have to get up again. You have to keep working on it. And then did you learn how to ride it eventually? Yeah, you did. That's right. And so when I teach my children about obeying God, I say that it takes practice. And if you practice disobedience, like let's say, you know, head upstairs to bed or get your PJs on or, you know, don't touch that thing on the counter. If you practice disobedience, you become good at disobedience. You become an expert at it. And so we want to teach our kids and God teaches us to practice the things that he's revealed. Because what this passage tells us is that we don't know when God will give us over to the things that we have practiced. He will remove the restraints and we will become experts untethered and unrestrained in the sin that we've practiced. And again, to do sin, you have to break through natural barriers. You have to break the barrier of conscience. You have to break the barrier of nature and you have to break the barrier of law. So it is a conscious decision to reject these things. And there is a penalty. And so when God removes this gracious restraint, the full weight and power of sin come to dominate a life. When God removes his gracious restraint, the full weight and power of sin take hold in a life. They take control. And when Paul wants to paint the ultimate picture of a life untethered from nature and law, he chooses the life of the homosexual. Let that sink in. This is so contrary to what our culture tells us about this sexual lifestyle. When Paul wants to paint a picture of a person totally given over and unrestrained by God, he gives us the homosexual. Now, this is not, and I want to be careful to say this, this is not to say that a given homosexual has no hope. That would be contrary to reality. We have hours and hours of testimony you can find online of people who have turned away from this lifestyle, who have been given hope in Jesus Christ and been transformed and delivered. 
So it is not to say that a given person is the, is as bad as they could be. And there's no hope for them. That's not what this passage says, but it says that when you see this take hold in a culture or in a person's life, it is a symbol of God letting his restraint go. It is a time to cry out for repentance. When you see this sin taking hold in a family or in an individual or in a culture, it is time to cry out for repentance because it is the bottom rung. It is God letting a person go because they exchanged the natural for the unnatural. It says men burned with lust toward each other. This is the picture of the unnatural. It's the picture of the twisted manipulation of nature, the good gift of nature that God has given us. Leviticus 18.23, we just read it. It lists bestiality and sodomy together as pair, sort of a pair sin. And it's because they both speak to one trait, abomination. Leviticus 18 says these are abominations. They are, I mean, there's no better word than abomination. It is just an utter disgrace. It is a total rejection of God. It is a total rejection of nature. And it abominates God's command to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it with children. So these two things are an abomination to the human uh, the cultural mandate to families to pr proliferate and take hold of the earth. Men committing east indecent acts with one another. This is the very rot of the human mind at the core. As it said, this, these are people whose minds became futile. And when God gave them over, men committed indecent acts with one another. And again, Christians... The, the queer culture that's around us does not want us to speak in these terms. They want to speak of love and of commitment and of family, things that can be counterfeited on the surface with two gay men taking care of a group of children and appearing as happy as any other family. Uh, one of the Democratic frontrunners, Pete Buttigieg, was this picture of a, of a sound home, of a two committed men. I think they even have adopted children or previously. And so what they want to do is they want to look at commitment and love and in these sort of non-physical realities. But the scriptures say this lifestyle accompanies indecent acts, the shameful acts, abominations that take place that set their hand against God. Uh, Joe Boot in the Mission of God says these terms are significant because biblically these are acts of chaos, these shameful acts. They're acts of chaos. Okay. And, and you can imagine why that is. They're acts of total chaos and confusion that flow out of a religious perspective that believes in primeval chaos. So these flow out of a religious perspective that believes in primal, primeval chaos, whereby social revitalization occurs. When man returns to chaos by acts of chaos, he reconnects with nature in his mind through these acts of chaos. They are chaotic because they confuse and mix that which God has differentiated for human flourishing, health, and furtherance of life, not death. 
Sexual perversion, which is what Joe is saying and which is what Paul is saying here. Sexual perversion arises from rejecting God's law and rejecting God's norm. Sexual perversion arises out of a religious viewpoint that says no to nature and no to God. And so the resultant idolatry expressed most potently is the act of homosexual perversion. Hear that again. The idolatry is expressed most powerfully in homosexual perversion. And I would go so far as to say that the homosexual culture that arises, the, the queering of culture, is worship in and of itself. It is a culture of worship. And the homosexual act is the sacramental offering of this depraved religion. This is why the movement is so militant. They are as militant as any fundamentalist religious organization because they are preserving, protecting, and spreading their religious viewpoint through worship, which incidentally is the same thing that we do. We spread our religion through worship. The worship of praise, the worship of good works, the worship of reading and hearing of God's word. And so we're going to transition now into this idea that culture is worship. So it, essentially they adopted a religion up in verse 24. They, God gave them up and they exchanged the natural for the unnatural. They rejected the glory of God for the glory of the creature. And it says that when God gave them up to it, they were able to indulge in their Religious worship freely, women toward women and men toward men. And I, and I want to park on this idea. And I know that there is a list of sins near the bottom. And, and we're not going to dive into each sin in the same way that Paul has laid out homosexuality here. But uh, the passage doesn't give them equal weight. And we're going to see them in just a moment. So let's look at culture as worship. Now many, and I heard a great sermon by a faithful pastor. Uh, just this week, I listened to it, and uh, he said, now, is homosexuality worse than other sins? Is it worse than other sins? And I'm just going to pose that and let that sit on you for about 10 seconds. It's, it's not a trick question, but it's a difficult question. What is, is it? Is homosexuality worse than other sins? Is it, is it the worst sin? A lot of churches define themselves by essentially, you know, that is, that's the sin you cannot recover from. You know, it's like, and, and they really put forward that sin is the worst possible sin. Now the answer is yes and no. Is homosexuality the worst sin in terms of your uh, need for God? No, God can redeem any sinner at any point in their life. The thief on the cross is an example of that. As well, we see uh, testimony of some of the worst sinners in our culture turning to Christ, rejecting their sins. So is homosexuality overcomable? Yes. Can God redeem the sinner? Yes. But we must not miss the fact and temper this verse by saying, well, Paul just picked one. I mean, he could have picked theft, that God gave them over and they all became thieves. But that's not what we see. And in fact, we have... In some ways, the privilege, although that's a bit of a dark term, of seeing right now 
the fruit of this passage in a way that those who lived in the 1950s wouldn't have seen. This would have been for some faraway time in some pagan nation like Rome. And yet now in the 21st century, we can see this taking root in our own time. And so we can look at it and say, what's the, what's the predominant public sin? It's not theft, although, although theft is institutionalized through socialism and, um, you know, those types of governmental policies. But, but there's no parallel. There's no comparison to the, the, the publicity and the pushing of this cultural phenomenon, of this religious worship. There's no mistaking that. It's taken root in education. It's taken root in, I mean, you can, you'll hear finance ministers talking about their role in bringing equality, gender equality. I mean, it, it has just pervaded, you know, every aspect of the human endeavor for those without Christ. And often Christians who go through this passage, we don't want to appear fundamentalist. And so we'll say, well, the, Paul's not saying that all sins, you know, that this is the worst sin. Uh, all sins are bad. We, we tend to overcorrect and say, you know, they, well, they're all bad. And Paul would never single out homosexuals. But that's what Paul does. We can't miss that. And there's a reason he does it. It's as a warning. It's not just to make people feel worse than other people or to heap more shame on one group than another group. And again, this is not to say that when you meet a homosexual or someone who's given to that, that you would treat them with less dignity than you would a white collar uh, you know, businessman who's a thief or treats his employee, employees unjustly. Just because he's cleaned up and has a happy family at home doesn't mean that he's any closer to God than the homosexual. That is not what this passage is saying. It's to say that when you see this take root, it has a religious root. It has a religious undergirding that you need to correct. So immorality springs from idolatry. And friends, this is true of us, by the way. You might not struggle with this sin. You may think this is very far away from me. But what this tells us is that idolatry gives birth to sin. And often the sins that we commit, God is already pouring judgment on us for our idolatry. Often we think that God punishes our sins. God chastises us for our sins. But what the Bible teaches is that our sins are God's judgment. When we commit sins, in some way, God has removed some restraint for us to indulge in that sin. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Sometimes we think, oh, I've slipped and I've committed a sin and now God's going to judge me. Very often, God has already judged you in the flesh in a, in a way by allowing you to commit that because it allows you to feel the shame. It allows you to feel the weight. It allows you to experience the consequence of idolatry. Often sin is just birthed from something that you desire. Uh, James says, I think you, you quarrel because you want what you don't have because you covet. Your fighting is just a symptom of the fact that you covet things. And your sexual sin is just a, a fruition. It's the fruit of idolatry in your heart. And so our sin is used to chastise us and get our attention. It's used to bring us back to the Lord. And so a dangerous approach would be to miss the religious root of the homosexual action. 
God says that when people reject God's knowledge, he gives them over to a idolatrous and a debased religion. And a religion always demands worship, as I said earlier on. And when that worship comes forth, it is expressed in terms of culture. This might be a new concept for you, but it, I, I forget the Christian theologian who said that culture is religion externalized. It was Van Til. It was Van Til. He said that culture is what the is the religion of a people made visible. So at one time, when there were Sabbath laws in Canada, it was illegal to open your store on a Sunday. That's part of our culture, right? If you know you can't go shopping on a Sunday, that's a that's a cultural norm that you would experience in Canada. Well, where's that from? That's Christian. When you look at the court systems that have the Ten Commandments on the walls and that basically uphold private property and, you know, um, uh, divorce laws, those things are derived from a Christian worldview. How come in some countries a man can beat to the point of death his wife without consequence? And at one time in Canada, if a man left his wife for no reason, he would essentially he would give up all of his wealth to her. There were steep penalties for violating the family in Canada at one time. These are rooted in Christian law, in Christian culture. And so in many ways, the West has been a Christian culture. Now, I, I haven't fully defended that, but I hope you can see the point there that the culture that you live in is, is not accidentally or randomly or neutrally what it is. And we can see now that as our culture is shifting, we have to recognize that there is a religious root at the bottom of that shift. It's not just that they have rejected Christianity. It's that they have embraced a new religion. There, there is no rejecting Christ and leaving a neutral vacuum in the center. And they are uh, embracing a, a culture, a religious culture that is pervasive. We just bought our six-year-old daughter a Playmobil set, or somebody did. Maybe it was you. And uh, it was a Playmobil set that was a wedding set. A beautiful wedding set. And I think there's a bride and a groom. I didn't look closely at the box yet. But these, uh, this, this particular toy, don't tell when, it was on clearance. Playmobil itself has taken up the cause of educating children in the new religion. As you can pick up toy sets now with two moms, two dads. If you think that toy making is a neutral endeavor that we can all kind of agree what kind of toys kids need, it's not. Every aspect of human life arises from a religious worldview, and you cannot escape that. And when you abandon the Christian worldview, you must replace it with something. And I can tell you that this new religion has successfully made inroads to most of the major institutions in our culture. It has already happened. So the, the question is not how to stop it. The question now is how to rebuild. It's how to move forward with a godly foundation. But friends... We have to recognize that the only way to combat false worship is true worship. We are not going to fix the nation merely through the arms and mechanisms of power. Although those things do need to be sanctified for Christ. They do need to be wielded for Christ. But where this comes from is true worship, which is given to the local church. Did you know that? The local church is the only mechanism for change that Christ said will never fail. 
And it is the local church which disciples the nations. The Great Commission does not say go and disciple, you know, atomized individuals disconnected from their people groups. It says disciple the nations. The church is the tutor for the nation. And we must do that through true worship by declaring the whole counsel of God. What is the... I mean, who would have thought that one of the major jobs of the Christian church in the 21st century would be to help explain what a man and a woman was? That is part of our cultural task today. It's to help people understand that God made man and woman and he made them good. We could say to our culture, as Jesus said to his culture, it was not this way from the beginning. For in the beginning, God gave Adam a wife. And that is God's design. And your body is given to you as a gift from God. So again, we have to look at how can the church respond to this in, in, the, in the time that we live? Well, number one, we fell for the equality agreement about 10, 15 years ago. All we want, the queer movement said, was equality. We just want the same rights that a husband and a wife would have. We just want to be, we, we just want a Christian ceremony to pronounce our marriage holy. And many pastors said, well, what can be the harm in that? You know, they just want to live in peace and amongst themselves and many individuals. That's true. There are many individual men or women who just, I have some neighbors and they are lovely people. They just want to live a quiet life. But in general, the religious movement does not accept equality because a religion, all religions have a dominion mentality. Every religion wants to expand every single one. They have a dominion mandate. And so by definition, equality is beneath the aims of sin. Anybody who tells you uh, that, that equality is their goal, when it's a, from, a, from an anti-Christ perspective, it's not. And in the same way, Christians, we don't claim to have an equal footing with all other world religions. We don't because we just sang this morning. He is the king of the earth. He makes claim to the, to, the, to the earth. For us to stand by and say, well, you know, we just want to see it at the table. You know, we just want to come together and sort of, you know, co-equally share the pie. And again, this is not to, to make Christians rude or unbecoming. It is to say, look, our, our, our king, he will have what he has won on his, by his crucifixion and ascension. He will have what was promised to him. He will have the nations as his, as his inheritance. And so one more idea that I, I, I need you to hear, because this is pervasive in this religious movement. It's the false idea of the upper and the lower portion of a human being. This movement and, and the, the sort of the daughter movement of the transgender uh, activity that's going on, which they're connected they claim that the true and important part of a person is the upper level. It's their mind. It's their inner being. It's anything that's intangible. It's their inner spirit. That's the really important part. And the lower aspect is the physical. Many Christians have bought into this for years, that the world doesn't really matter. The physical doesn't really matter. That because there's some vague notion that because Jesus is going to burn everything, our bodies don't matter. Everything is just, that's secondary. But the really important part of who you are is your mind and your spirit. That has given way. That has opened the doors to the argument that the 
homosexual and the transgender movement has used. They have taken that and they have said, good, if the body doesn't matter, then what does God care what I do with it? I can be, and there's a huge movement of, you know, faithfully LGBTQ Christians who believe God doesn't care what I do with my body as long as I love him. Disconnecting that love is obedience to the law. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You cannot disconnect them. The body and the spirit and the soul are connected. We are woven together. David says in Psalm 139, we are woven together in our mother's wombs. It is only at death when our body and our spirit are temporarily even separated. The body is important. That's part of what the gospel story is. This is why the Greeks couldn't understand it, because Jesus was raised in his physical body. And he reigns now in his physical body with hands in his hand, holes in his hands in his side. The physical is tremendously important. It's integral to our cultural mandate. And so the body cannot be just used as a hammer, either to pull a nail or to drive a nail. The body is not just some tool that is used for whatever is convenient or preferable. Again, the groundwork for this was laid in the elementary schools when they told children, you are accidental. You are a product of blind and cruel evolutionary force. There's no design to your body. There's no purpose to your body. That has opened the doors to say, well, sure. Then I will tell my body what its purpose is. I will determine the purpose of my body with my mind. I, I won't let my body tell my mind what it's designed for because that's either an illusion or it's an accidental product of history. So we need to combat these things by saying, no, God designed your body and your body is an indication of what is good and right. This is how we can push back against these arguments. And the church, frankly, has been at a loss for words as to how to combat these arguments with truth. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. It's not just about a, a, a heart and a soul that is turned towards God. It is that in our bodies, we glorify him. Sexual perversion is one of the rankest rejections of God. And it is one of the most repulsive possible. In street terms, it's a giant middle finger to God. It says to God, I will do what I want. It doesn't require a temple. It doesn't require technology. It does not require sophisticated learning. It is the basest, most vilest rejection of God at the most intimate level of the human person. It mars and destroys the image of God. Remember, it says that he created the male and female. He created them in the image of God. There is something about the maleness and femaleness union that depicts the image of God. And so when homosexual perversion takes over, it destroys and corrupts and deprives humanity of that image. We can't miss the religious root of what Paul's saying here. So the depraved mind down in verse 28 says they did not see fit to acknowledge God and God gave them up to a mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And then we have that list there are a few of these lists in the New Testament that go through this sort of colorful description of how man given over to sin 
is engaged in every form of wickedness. Disobedient to parents, slanderers, haters of God, proud, inventors of evil, foolish and faithless. These are people that are just given over. There is a public cruelty and a public pride and a public deceit and maliciousness and, 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 a, and a gossip um, spirit that comes upon a people and a family when this is given free reign. You, you, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot just pick and choose these sins, but they, they flood into a mind that has rejected God. And this is key right here. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. They become institutionalized. They become publicly approved. They become pushed on children. Because children are the most able to learn. They're the most influenced, right? Children are the most susceptible to being taught. There's a reason why, and I'm stealing this from Joe Boot again, there's a reason why the homosexual culture is so eager to get to your kids. It's because they don't have any of their own. Now that's harsh. But friends, unless we understand that, we're not going to take seriously the threat that is in the public education system. We're not going to take seriously the threat that is in public culture. It's invaded our medical system. It's invaded our educational system. It, it, it's, it's invading the financial systems. And I don't have time to get into that now, but they are finding ways to incorporate queer culture into financial law and practice. And they need your children to do it. And many families and churches are willing to let them go. But friends, I let the weight of this sink in. Because it is for this, it, it is seeing the worst of what can happen when a culture rejects God that drives us to repentance. It drives us to the truth of Jesus Christ. It drives us to read on in Romans to hear about the law of God, to hear about the redemption of Christ, the second Adam. It drives us to cling to God. It drives us to beg for renewal. It drives us to beg for transformation. What can break the spirit of chains, the spirit of captivity, the spirit of that imprisonment that God gave them over to. What can break that in Smith Falls? What can break that in Perth? What can break that in Canada? It's not holding signs in protest, although that might be something that is useful to get somebody's attention. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the ongoing worship and testimony of the true church. <clears throat> this may be an odd place to turn um, just to conclude, but I want to look at Luke because this is embedded in why Jesus came. Luke chapter 4, and this is one of my favorite passages. It says in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, when he came to Nazareth, that is Jesus, where he had been brought up, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Incidentally, this is Isaiah Chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is the year of Jubilee. Christ in his coming has proclaimed the year of Jubilee upon the earth. The fulfillment, the final of the 50 years. Every 50 years was the year of Jubilee. It's when land under lease would be returned to its original owner. It's when those paying debts would be released from those debts. And when Christ came, he said, I am now proclaiming liberty to the captives, those that God has, has imprisoned in sin, and Romans talks about that later, those that God has given over to the judgment of their sin, who has blinded their eyes by their idolatrous worship. Christ says, I have come to open the eyes of the blind. I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this passage is not to say the world has been given over and is going to hell without any recourse or opportunity. The church must recognize that we live in the days of Jubilee. We serve the king who has released the captives. We serve the God who frees people from their sin. Because much of this queer culture is learned. It is taught. It is discipled. The scandalization that has come upon a generation of children those shepherds will face the living God for what they've done. But it is to us to disciple the nations in the truth. It is to us to proclaim the way men and women are designed without shame, without embarrassment. Again, how do we combat this? We reject false religion, which is literally fruitless. It is barren. False religion is barren. Homosexual indulgence is barren. We reject a fruitless, idolatrous worship. And we bind ourselves in marriage. We give ourselves to child bearing and child rearing. Embrace a culture of life starting in the family. The family is the, is the singular greatest rebuke of the homosexual lifestyle in our culture. Did you know that? Which is, again, why it's being institutionalized to make it more difficult and more obscure to make known the unification of the family. They're changing laws so that women can't unite with the husband's last name. They're changing, they're getting rid of the words mother and father on legal forms. They're doing everything they can to obscure and erase and decolor the family because the family is a rebuke of the rejection of God. The family is an indication of God's design. So embrace your family, love your family, though it might be difficult. Embrace the family bond that God has given you with your children, whether they are young or whether they are grown up. The family is a, is a signpost of God's purpose for mankind. Again, this should go without saying, but reject indoctrination of false religion to children. Just reject it. Christians don't have to do it. We don't have to let the culture indoctrinate our kids in false worship. We don't have to. So embrace a lifestyle. Embrace some means of being the primary discipler of your children and educator of your children, whether that's through hiring somebody that you know is teaching the word of God, whether that's a Christian school or whether it's a tutor or whether many options exist, but reject indoctrination of children. Don't let them bring your children into this false worship. It's destructive. And finally, seek purity in your life and in your worship. Reject idolatry in your heart because it bears ugly fruit. It bears very ugly fruit. If 
That's what this passage is about. The homosexual lifestyle that Paul brings out here, it is, it, it, it's, it's brutal. It's graphic what Paul puts forward. But it's what he's saying is that's a picture of what happens when you let idolatry take root in your heart. So maintain pure worship, maintain a pure heart before the Lord, repent of idolatry and root it out and pursue true worship. Whether in your homes or your life or your church, repent of twisted desire and come to God and allow him to renew your mind. I know that there's much more that can be said on this topic. I know that this doesn't deal with all the complexities that we believe maybe people are dealing with. I know that. But what I've laid forth here is, is the religious root and the explanation, I think, for why we see what's going on in our culture and to recognize that the only remedy is true worship of our God.